This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. So I guess this is an old grave site. Do you think you can take Granny's arm so we can walk out into it a little bit? There's a lot of weeds here. Why do you think it's important to be here and for future generations to come to these places? This is the oldest cemetery in the city. Oh, I like the idea of walking through here and wondering who these people were and what they saw and would they be happy to know that somebody is here looking at their grave and thinking about them? My mother, Lynn Lefevre, and I are at the Oakwood Cemetery, the oldest city-owned cemetery in Austin, Texas. It's full of some of the city's most important people from centuries ago. Beneath the earth are congressmen, governors, and athletes, local legends in Austin's history. But my mom and I are in a different section, the section where the city's people of color were often buried in the 1800s. So this is what they considered to be the quote-unquote colored section, which was anyone of color, including people who were black. This is also somewhere in here where some of the victims of the Servant Girl Annihilator are, but I don't know if there are even markers Do you see these big spaces, these open spaces? They said that this section of the cemetery is completely filled, but there are so many spaces that have no markers, Mm -hmm. you know, for different Mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. This is where all the Black victims of the Servant Girl Annihilator are buried. It wasn't difficult for my mother and I to locate Sue Hancock, one of his white victims, but it's been really hard to find the six Black victims. Really hard. So what do you, what's your impression, Mom, of all of this? Um, the headstones are impressive. They're beautiful, beautiful trees here. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. Some of these seem very old and, you know, cracked and not taking care of them. And some of them look very recent. So I wonder if there are family members who came out here and replaced the headstones, which would be just a lovely idea. Yes, it certainly would be. Eugene Burt's father, Dr. William Jefferson Burt, is buried here at Oakwood Cemetery, too, somewhere. I haven't located that gravesite yet. Dr. Burt was one of those local legends. And to understand his youngest son, Eugene Burt, we should talk a little bit about his father and his mother because they both influenced him in different ways. When Dr. Burt still lived in Georgia, he served in the Civil War as an army physician. As you can imagine, this was a difficult, traumatic job for many doctors. Lots of blood, lots of death, and no way to stop any of it. When Patricia Childs and I first talked about the Burt's over the phone, I asked her what Dr. Burt might have experienced during the war. I live here in Nashville, and we had a number of, of battles 
here and in Franklin we have a house there that was used as the surgery as the hospital and there has never been any way to get all of the blood out of the wood floor. Because there was so much of it, right? Do you think William Jefferson Burt would have been traumatized? I mean, I, he had to have been. They would have to take limbs off at that point in time that had become infected by not being brought in time in order to save the rest of the body. And I think it would be very important for for your listeners to have those images just for them to understand what was going could have been uh, going on in William Jefferson's head at night. I would imagine that people could have those kinds of dreams. I imagine that there must have been some PTSD for doctors who served in the war. I can't even imagine what that would have been like to be the one to have to take those limbs in order to save life. A war doctor like William Burt must have tried to compartmentalize everything he had seen, the lives he couldn't save, and pain and suffering he couldn't stop. Burt was 21 when the war began and 26 when it ended. Men like William Burt rarely discussed their traumas. Some turned to alcohol and some used legal drugs like morphine to dull the pain. And some just hid their anguish from everyone. At the end of the war, William Burt was discharged from the Army. When he returned home to his wife, Cleo, they had their three sons, each just two years apart. Eugene was the youngest. As we've talked about before, Eugene's mother seemed to struggle with mental health issues. Much of her family had. Patricia Childs and I talked about Eugene's childhood with a mother who struggled to stay stable and a father who was rarely at home. His mother, Cleo, was really struggling when Eugene was growing up, and I wonder what that must have felt like for him because his father wasn't around a lot, I presume, because of his job. Even today, when you think of the typical physician, you see they were always on call, kind of like your pastor. You know, you were on call and not always present being a servant to the community. But what would that have been like for Eugene? I can't imagine it wasn't difficult. That would leave, I think, Eugene even more susceptible to whatever sort of emotional, psychological drama was going on in the home. No one to mitigate, to take him aside or comfort. You know, I think that could bring up a lot of issues. Patricia's right. I've read through Dr. Burt's various medical testimonies in the local newspaper, and he seemed to be reporting to crime scenes with investigators at all hours even on Sundays and on holidays. Remember that he had come to two homes on Christmas Eve of 1885 when the servant girl annihilator killed two women in the same night. It must have been difficult for Cleo Burt to balance her own mental health while raising three boys, all in their teens. Julie Norton is from Cleo's family line. She says that Cleo's life was challenging. I am curious about the mother and what her, her life must have been like. Oh, my gosh. Eugene had always seemed like a boy on the edge of trouble when he wasn't fully diving into it. And his poor choices continued until he was in his mid-20s, 
and he married Annie Powers. And then they lucked out and had two beautiful, sweet little girls. Annie and Eugene married at her mother's home in 1891 when he was just 21, the same age that his father was when he married. Three years later, they had Lucille, and then two years after that, they had Eleanor. They moved into the house on 9th Street in downtown Austin and seemed to live quietly. Eugene helped Annie with her daily chores, and he played with the girls outside the home. But there always seemed to be money problems. Eugene had troubles keeping a job. And Annie told her mother Elizabeth that her mercurial husband had always been distant, just slightly out of her reach. His brothers, Monty and Roscoe, traced Eugene's aloofness to the sudden death of their father. When Dr. Burt passed away in the summer of 1886, he and Cleo had just celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary a few months earlier. For the next 10 years, Eugene Burt seemed to become more and more unmoored from his family, except for his mother, Cleo. He doted on her, and Cleo needed his support because she could no longer see or hear. Eugene seemed to be kind to her. He prioritized their visits, but while his relationships with his mother and his own family appeared to be stronger, other relationships were faltering. By late 1895, Eugene was no longer working for his brothers. He was taking small jobs, but they were jobs that didn't provide enough income for their family of four. Eugene and his wife and their kids celebrated Christmas at the end of that year. Christmas was a relatively recent tradition for the Burts. Christmas as a commercial holiday became popular during the Civil War just 25 years earlier. And the first American president to put up a tree in the White House was Benjamin Harrison in 1889. In 1895, Annie, her mother, her sister, and the little girls went to St. Mary Cathedral just a few blocks away, but Eugene refused as usual. He had devoutly attended his parents' Presbyterian church until his father died. After that, he had no use for religion. New Year's Eve came and went. The local paper wrote, the year 1895, no more. It peacefully died last night at the still hour of midnight. The city clock struck 12. One or two pistol shots pierced the quiet of the midnight air in Austin. It was a New Year's tradition. Eugene's brothers continued to do very well in business. They were perfect partners. The pair had placed an ad in the paper for their family shoe store. Burt Shoe Company read the ad, the old reliable shoe house in Austin. They were selling a pair of ladies' shoes made of calf and kangaroo skin, $5 a pair. Business was going well for Roscoe and Monty, not so much for their brother Eugene. He continued to struggle with finances, and Roscoe and Monty had no use for him. He was unreliable and haughty and sneaky. They didn't trust him, and he resented it. Despite having a lovely wife and two little girls, 
something happened that plunged Eugene into deeper despair around the holidays. The mother, whom he adored, became gravely ill. As Cleo Burt laid in her son Monty's home, she was not doing well. She had lost her husband about 11 years earlier, and she never quite recovered from his death, just like Eugene. Both were inconsolable. Cleo had bouts of mania, followed by extreme lows. And now, for much of the month, she had been depressed and anxious, and eventually, she became despondent. On July 22, 1896, at 5.15 p.m., Eugene's mother, Cleo Burt, passed away. I asked local historian Monica Ballard about her death. Constant manic episodes. His mother was said to die from nervous prostration. That's on the death certificate. Nervous prostration. I had never heard that term until I began researching this case. There are loads of weird 19th century diagnoses that I come across, but nervous prostration was a new one. The patients were typically found lying down, dead from exhaustion and stress, frayed nerves, perhaps caused by mental illness. Cleo struggled with mental health, but she was also traumatized after losing her eyesight and her hearing. So the official cause of death was nervous prostration. But really, the 55-year-old likely had died of heart failure. Cleo's obituary in the paper was very kind. It read, She was a member of the Southern Presbyterian Church and was a devout Christian, a loving mother, and a friend to all in need. But the cause of his mother's death seemed inconsequential to Eugene because he had now lost a second parent, someone he was extremely close to. And with Cleo's death, any slight connection he had to his extended family also vanished. After Eugene's mother died, he just totally went off the deep end one time. His mother's death was yet another stressor, and almost exactly six months later, all that anger and sadness and frustration would rage against the family he had once loved, the people who had supported him the most, sometimes even financially. Julie Norton says that the timing of Cleo's death might have actually been a blessing. I mean, she died the same year as these murders. She escaped that. Wow. Despite being married to a physician and having two successful sons, Cleo Burt had suffered from a hard life. She had gone blind and deaf at a relatively young age, and she likely struggled with mental illness, a condition that she might have passed on to her youngest son, Eugene. Retired law school professor Linda Frost says that early intervention in a child's life could help shape their adult lives. But the Burts didn't have the benefit of our advances in mental health assessment. I think we're all recognizing that it can be helpful to have medical histories. So if there is schizophrenia that runs in my family, it's helpful for me to know about it. And I may be able to build my resilience to make it less likely for me to actually experience schizophrenia. I may be able to identify certain symptoms or warning signs earlier so I can get supports and treatment earlier on. So early intervention is key. 
lots of times strong support early on can really help not only me, but my family if I'm experiencing symptoms. So I think that an awareness of particular vulnerabilities that my family might have would be useful in that sense. Over the last two episodes, we talked about stressors and how they can trigger someone who is already struggling. The death of a parent or a spouse is certainly a stressor. And after his mother died in early 1896, Eugene must have felt abandoned. And if he were already prone to violence, then things would likely not go well. But in 1896, despite all of that, neighbors didn't seem to notice any problems with the family. That summer was very hot. Every summer in Texas is very hot. The birds slept with their windows and doors open. Neighbors said that Eugene would walk around the yard at night holding his daughter's hands. Lucille was three and Eleanor was about 18 months old. They always seemed to be smiling and he almost always carried little Eleanor around. Annie would sit on their porch and watch her husband and the children play as the evenings waned. Neighbors saw them huddled up in a sweet embrace before going inside. During the day, Eugene helped around the house, including cooking meals. He broke up ice for refrigerating food and he made repairs to the home and he would also split wood with his ax. Friends said that Eugene never spoke harshly to the girls or to Annie. They genuinely seemed loving. Even their live-in cook, Minnie Sims, believed they were a happy family. But inside the home, behind the door of the master bedroom, Eugene was beginning to act strangely. When Annie and her mother had a private moment, Annie became very serious. Local historian Monica Ballard says that Eugene's behavior was alarming to Annie, especially on recent summer nights. She expressed to her mother that Eugene's behavior was getting a little odd occasionally, that she would wake up to find him standing over her, watching her sleep. Creepy, definitely, but not exactly threatening. And yet it disturbed Annie enough for her to report it to her mother, and there were other things. Annie and Eugene had visited Dr. Smoot, his father's good friend and a pastor at his family's Presbyterian church. Smoot and Eugene argued over something minor and Eugene began to bellow profanities. Smoot asked Annie to take Eugene home immediately. That must've been so embarrassing for her. As the Bird household became more tense, Annie sensed that danger was coming. Annie told her mother that she had recently begun having terrible feelings. She called them premonitions. She felt like someone was in danger, her two little girls. Annie was afraid that Eleanor and Lucille might die, but she couldn't sort out how or why. It was so frightening. Her sister and her mother consoled her before she returned home. They must have felt she was overreacting but bad things were about to happen inside the house on 9th Street. Relative Patricia Childs has read a lot about this case, and she thinks that the people around Eugene should have intervened sooner. 
She thinks that his brothers continued to help Eugene far longer than they should have. I was just saying out loud to these people, stop enabling this person. He would lie and they would keep bailing him out. He didn't have to face consequences. And yet, if this was a condition that he was in effect born with, would any amount of loving parenting, appropriate parenting, setting up boundaries, would any of that really served a purpose? Or was he in some way and sadly doomed to just be the person he was? Annie and Eugene were fighting more often that summer of 1896, mostly over finances. Eugene often blamed his brothers for their financial issues. He was bitter toward Roscoe and Monty. Why didn't they trust him more? Annie and Eugene's voices ricocheted inside the home. Neighbors noticed that Eugene seemed more tense. Annie was concerned about the future of her two daughters. Where will we get money? Eugene hadn't worked in months. Eugene's brothers no longer trusted him because he had tried to forge documents. He had stolen money and he had ruined business deals. Relative Jeremy Childs says Eugene Burt had a complicated personality. He was really hard to pin down. A lot of people will describe him as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of situation, but in reality, uh, Eugene Burt was kind of a shyster. He had some pretty shady business dealings where he screwed over his brothers in a deal. One of the newspapers described him as having a total disregard to moral and legal obligations in his business relations and dull to a sense of business honor. Eugene's relationship with his brothers had always been strained. It had been for years, especially since their father's death. And now it had devolved, and it was irreparable. Eugene's brothers were tired of giving him second chances. They were tired of being taken advantage of. And they were tired of loaning Eugene money that was never returned. Monty and Roscoe felt sorry for Annie and the girls. Why couldn't Eugene be more like them? He had been given the same opportunities, the same parents. Why was he such an immense failure? By 1896, Monty and Roscoe were done with Eugene. They were now estranged from their brother, which was easier because their mother was dead. Cleo Burt had been the final bond between Eugene and his brothers. Monty and Roscoe resented Eugene, and now they wanted back everything he had stolen from them. The Burt brothers went to court and demanded that their brother be charged with forgery and embezzlement and theft. They accused him of swindling them out of money and merchandise. It had gone on for years. Soon, Eugene Burt was indicted and he was facing a prison sentence if he were convicted. Annie, her mother, and her sister were all humiliated and frightened. How would Annie and the girls survive without him if he went to prison? Eugene was out on bond until his trial date was set, and there was an incredible amount of tension between Eugene and Annie. Because of the bond, there was now a lien on the Bird's home on 9th Street. If he were convicted, he might serve a long sentence. It all terrified Annie, and it angered Eugene. He despised his brothers for ruining him. Roscoe and Monty stayed far away from the home on 9th Street for now. Someone in the Burt family would die soon. But who? 
Eugene Burt was frustrated by Friday evening, July 24, 1896. He and Annie sat on their veranda facing the street and quietly argued. Soon, he stewed in silence. The cicada bugs buzzed, as they always do in Texas in the summer. Eugene and Annie were at odds again. The 27-year-old desperately needed a new start. He was ready to leave Austin, and he felt the city of Dallas could be the key. Eugene was sure Dallas would be a wonderful place to live and an excellent place to hide from his brothers. And he wanted Annie and the girls to come with him. They had some distant relatives there, and Eugene needed a fresh start because he could not keep a job here in Austin, even even with his brothers. He tried working at their shoe store. They'd given him money to open up a cigar shop. Nothing was working out. He just kept blowing it at every turn. Most of us could use a fresh start at some point in our lives. Perhaps Annie understood this, and eventually she and Eugene must have resolved the argument because according to their live-in cook, Minnie Sims, the family was ready to retire for the evening by around 9 o'clock. This night would be a turning point for the Burts. Minnie says that before she went out with her brother that evening, that she helped Mrs. Burt with the children, that Mr. Burt carried the toddler upstairs to bed. After Eugene tucked Eleanor into bed, he went back downstairs to the dining room and poured some milk in a bottle. Annie and little Lucille watched him as Minnie stood nearby. Eugene returned to Eleanor's bedroom and gave her the milk. Minnie smiled and wished Annie and Eugene a nice night. She told them that she'd be home by 11 in about two hours. They were putting the children to bed. Everything was fine. And she left with her brother to go visit some places in East Austin. When she came back, the lamplights were already out. It was 11 o'clock now. Minnie lit her lamp in the bedroom downstairs and prepared for bed. Soon, she was asleep. Another woman milled around her bedroom in a different house, just as Minnie was going to bed. A neighbor who lived literally five feet from the Burt's. Their houses were that close together. The woman's master bedroom window faced the Burt's bedroom windows upstairs. It was a hot night, so the woman raised her windows and let some of the breeze come into her stuffy home. She laid down and tried to sleep, but she couldn't. She listened as her clock chimed every half hour. She lost track of how many times it had chimed that night. Sometime after midnight, the neighbor heard a distressing sound. She described it as a deep, horrible sound, but she couldn't tell where it came from. One neighbor did say that she awoke in the night after hearing a strange sound, but thought it was an animal or something like that. But she couldn't really identify whether it was human or animal or something like that. But it was like something or someone crying out. She raced to her children's bedroom and flung open the door. They were safe. 
Now the neighbor was confused. What was that terrible sound? It was so clear, but was it in her house or somewhere else? She raced down the stairs and stepped onto her veranda, but no one was there. She was confused and concerned, but there was nothing to be done this late. The neighbor retired to her room once again. The breeze pushed through her curtains. Just as she was finally falling asleep, she sat up. She thought she heard a young voice call out, just once. She prayed that it was simply a child having a bad dream. The night was quiet now. The Burt family was silent. Many Sims would not be allowed to sleep in this morning. It was Saturday, July 25th, around seven o'clock in the morning. Eugene woke her up and said, Minnie, I need for you to go down to the market to get some meat for my breakfast. And Minnie said, well, don't you want me to see to Mrs. Burt and the children first? And he said, no, 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 they're not here. Minnie was surprised, first because she rarely went to the market for the Burt's. Annie usually did that. But also, she always greeted Annie and the girls in the morning. Where are they? Minnie asked Eugene. He smiled and explained. There'd been some trouble last night, and I put them on the 5 a.m. train to San Antonio. Don't give me an argument. Just go down to the market, get some meat for my breakfast, and then we'll continue packing. He told Minnie that they had decided to move to Dallas. Annie and the girls would return home in a few days, he said, and in the meantime, he would start the packing, and then they would all leave together. Eugene told Minnie that he wanted to sell some of the furniture that they wouldn't need to take with them. And he asked her to receive anyone who came to the door with cash in hand. She agreed and began cooking breakfast. While she worked, Minnie glanced over at Eugene. He looked worried. He was pacing. Maybe he was concerned because Annie and the girls were on their own in San Antonio, Minnie thought. Then she noticed a few large crates in the corner of the room. She hadn't seen those before. And then something odd happened. Minnie picked up the tea kettle to make tea, but first she'd need to get some water. A thought crossed Eugene's face as she walked out the door, and he swung around to follow as she walked down towards the basement. So Minnie comes back and starts preparing breakfast, and she goes to get some water from the cistern. She finds that the pump handle for the cistern, you know, the well, it's, it's missing. And so she asked him about that. And he said, oh, I don't want anyone using the cistern because a cat fell in last night. So just get the water from somewhere else. I asked Monica to describe what a cistern was. It's generally in the basement or the lower part of the house. And it's the way that you would see one of those raised sewer grates or something like that. It would have had a, probably a wooden top on it that would have held it in place. And then there's generally a pump handle off to one side and you just pump the water up and out and use. And downtown Austin is honeycombed with artesian springs. And so it probably fed into one of the artesian springs. So a cat had fallen into the cistern Minnie found that strange, although it wouldn't be the first time an animal had fallen into a cistern. 
So she closed the door to the basement and continued cooking breakfast for Eugene. Minnie gives him his breakfast and the dishes are cleared and now they're ready to continue packing. And so they're, they're packing these crates and some of them have already been nailed shut. Mr. Miller is coming by later to buy all their furnishings. Whatever they're not taking to Dallas, he's gonna buy it from them, including the picture frames. Eugene orders Minnie to take the family photos out of the frames because Miller is going to buy them. And when she does so, she says, what packing crate do you want the family photos in? And he says, just throw them on the trash pile. That's strange. Why wouldn't Eugene want to keep their family photos? Photos were far less common in the late 1800s than they are today. So you'd expect them to be important to him, but Eugene seemed anxious to discard anything that might remind him of his family. And then he told Minnie that he wanted to give her something from the master bedroom, his mattress. So she walked upstairs and started to drag it out of the room. Minnie is offered and she accepts their mattress, the mattress from Annie and Eugene's bed. She notices that one part of the ticking has been cut off, so it's missing a little bit of the mattress. And she goes downstairs to ask Eugene about this and finds him in the, in the dining room, sitting there with his elbows on his knees, just staring at the floor, and is weeping. So she thought, well, let's not ask him about that right now. And when he recovers himself, he comes back upstairs and the packing continued. Mr. Mr. Miller shows up, gets all the furniture. Minnie is paid her wages and told goodbye. And Eugene takes several of the packing crates by trolley down to the train station. At the station, Eugene loaded the crates on a train that was heading out of town. We don't know what's in those crates yet, but here's the thing. Eugene didn't get on the train with them. He just shipped the crates off to who knows where, presumably Dallas. Then Eugene spent a good part of Saturday afternoon receiving additional boxes for packing and negotiating with secondhand furniture men who wanted to buy items in the house. That night came one final knock on the door of the house on 9th Street. This is the milkman, said the voice. Eugene seemed weary and worn as he greeted the milkman. Rather than tell the truth about moving, Eugene told him that he and his family were moving just a few blocks away. And he gave the milkman a fake address. I asked Monica Ballard and Jeremy Childs about what happened later that evening. He pretty much batches it the rest of the day. He goes and gets himself a haircut and a shave and has dinner at the Capitol Hotel, plays 11 games of checkers with some opponents that he always, you know, lost to. Now he wins seven games. And people that he played checkers with said he was over-the-top jovial. He was unusually jovial. Everyone that saw him said he acted totally normal. He ran into people that he knew. He even stopped at a hotel for a game of checkers with a buddy of his. Eugene told a different story to each person he met. He told one friend that the Burts were moving to San Antonio. To another, he said Dallas. And one, he said Georgetown, which is just outside of Austin. Eugene Burt was so accustomed to lying 
that he lost track of the lies. So about 11.30, he goes back down to the train station and buys a ticket for the midnight train to Dallas. And he runs into a high school buddy, and uh, they chatted up the whole time, and no one has any idea. And he's on the train. He has some conversations with another passenger. And even though he's in a very jovial state, his mood shifts quite suddenly because he sees a woman a few rows ahead. Her name is Mrs. Driscoll and notes that her husband had just passed and she was a widow now and he feels rather sorry for her. And they just sit and and watch her for a little bit. The other passenger noted how his mood shifted from one of joviality to one of a very pensive nature as he watched Mrs. Driscoll. Guilt, is that what we think it is? Yeah, I think think it has to do with someone has been left alone. Someone has suffered a death. He gets off the train in Dallas. And Eugene Burt vanished into the city. The truth of what happened that night was dreadful. And Eugene was clearly not prepared to reveal anything. But to the outside world, it just seemed like something odd was happening to the Burt family. Why had Annie and the girls left so abruptly? Why had Eugene discarded their family photos? And why lie to the milkman? Perhaps Eugene and Annie had agreed to start over in Dallas. Maybe they could get back on their feet there. And maybe it would be far enough away to escape his brothers. And maybe he thought the lies would confuse them if they came looking for him. Or was there something else going on? To friends, he seemed to be an excellent father and a kind husband. But Eugene had a history of instability and a fascination with death. Was he legally insane? Did he have psychopathy? And had he done something horrible? Of all the questions that we have, two are the most pressing right now. Where was Eugene Burt? And what happened to Annie and Lucille and Eleanor? On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right... I would have to start with his father, the doctor, William Burt, because I really do think that Eugene Burt's psychosis stems from his childhood, either some of the things that he saw or possibly even participated in, and I think it damaged him. Mothers drive into a light with their children in the car. It's hard to know. When somebody has it in their head, they can't deal with two children, a wife that won't leave you alone. If you've got that in your mind, then that's a problem. You know, who knows what you would do? And even before they entered the house, there was a foreboding odor and the ominous hum of a myriad of flies underneath the floor in the basement. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. 
Editors Jason Whaling, David Fabello, and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.